0: So first readings from Song of Songs, chapter 2, verses 8 to 17. Listen, my beloved, look, here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. My My beloved spoke and said to me, arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. See, the winter is past The rains are over and gone Flowers appear on the earth The season of singing has come The cooing of doves Is heard in our land The fig tree forms its early fruit The blossoming vines Spread their fragrance Arise, come my darling My beautiful one, come with me My dove In the clefts of the rock In the hiding places of the mountainside Show me your face Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that run in the vineyards, that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. My beloved is mine and I am his. He browses among the lilies until the day breaks and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the rugged hills. And now from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 16. Now for the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do, but they, if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you you know, husband, whether you will save your wife?
1: Hello everyone. My name is Evan. It's great to be here. Great to be able to share God's word with you. But let's pray because we're going to need God's help tonight, aren't we? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for all that it has to teach us. We pray now that you would give us understanding. But we pray not just for understanding tonight. We pray for open hearts. Lord, we pray that in these matters of the heart that we're looking at both this week and next week, Lord, we pray that you would really help us to want to do what is right, to want to do what the Lord Jesus teaches us so that we might know and experience the great blessings that you give us as we think and as we talk deeply about sex and marriage and singleness and all these wonderful things. And we ask it all in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. When they train you to be a preacher... One of the things they tell you is that you always need an introduction. You always need to give people a reason why it is that they're supposed to listen to you. And if you are an aspiring preacher, that's some very good advice. Except, they say, when you're talking about sex. Because then you know everyone is interested. Everyone wants to know what you have to say. There's that little kind of nervous tension running through the whole room right now. As you thinking, what's he going to say today? What's he going to talk to us about tonight? And actually, uh, I do want to give you a reason. Uh, One reason is I will go slowly redder the longer the night goes on. You can watch me get more and more embarrassed as we talk about all these topics. That's always good fun. Uh, But there's another reason why I'd like you to listen to what I have to say tonight. And that is this. Sex is a gospel issue. Sex is a gospel issue. Sex is actually right at the heart of of our understanding of the gospel or perhaps a better way to put it is the gospel will actually change our hearts right from the center and it'll change our attitudes towards sex it'll change our attitudes towards marriage it'll change our attitudes towards singleness it'll change our attitudes to all of these things if we understand the gospel and just what it has to say to us and so sex is, is not, as some might say, it's not kind of on the periphery of, of Christianity and that, you know, occasionally and reluctantly we talk about it. Uh, but nor is sex, as other people would say, uh, something that we're obsessed about uh, and yet we shouldn't talk about it at all. No, in fact, sex is very much a gospel issue. It's very, very important. Uh, come with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 to 20. Just a one page back, probably not even a page back from, uh, from our reading from 1 Corinthians today. Uh, and here's where we ended up just a few weeks ago before Easter with these words. Verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples to the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You are not your own, says the Apostle Paul. You are bought at a price, and that price was the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, which conveniently we spent last weekend of Easter remembering and telling each other about. But as Christians, we were reminded that we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to the one who saved us. We're slaves of Christ now, the one master in whom is found perfect freedom. And therefore, says Paul, honour God with your very body. That's the command. Honour the price that Jesus paid to redeem us from sin. And death. And then Paul gives us 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is how we do it. How we honour God with our redeemed bodies. And it's a chapter that's all about sex, it's all about marriage, and it's all about singleness. In other words, the gospel of Jesus changes your sex life. It changes our whole approach, all of our thinking and all of our hearts on this matter. And in fact, one of the marks of a growing Christian faith, a growing trust in the Lord Jesus, is that we let him speak to us on this topic. And actually, we let him tell us what to do and how to think and even ultimately how to feel. And so we're going to spend two weeks in, in 1 Corinthians 7 uh, spelling out what it means to honour God with our bodies, with our very sexuality. Uh, this week we're talking about sex, and then next week we're going to talk about singleness. And so I've got kind of three headings that are coming up on the screen now for you, three headings that we're going to look at tonight, just in case you're the type of person who really likes to take notes. Uh, first of all, I want to talk to you about sexy Christianity. That's just to get you kind of all interested. Sexy Christianity, and then I want to talk about how sex it, it isn't about me. It isn't about you. And then lastly, I want to give us a warning and warn us about how we have made it all about me. Uh, but really, I'm never going to be able to say everything that needs to be said in a simple sermon, so I'm glad we've got lots of time for, for questions afterwards. And let me remind you that, yeah, these, these are our emotional topics. There might be things that get said this week or next week uh, that cause fresh pain or even reopen old wounds, uh, these are all matters that are really close to our hearts and so these can be some of the hardest areas for us to listen to the Lord Jesus, particularly because others we might have trusted in these matters of the heart over the years, they may have failed us or they may have hurt us and we can sometimes be afraid that the Lord Jesus will do the same, but he won't. And so let's go and look at God's word together, shall we? Let's get started. Firstly then, Sexy Christianity. What I want to show you, first of all, is that actually Christianity is very, very sexy, uh, which I admit is kind of a hard thing to do. Uh, sex and Christianity have always had a, a somewhat uneasy relationship. Uh, fairly early on in the history of Christianity, Jesus' singleness was taken as a sign that it was holier to be single and to be celibate than it was to be married. And very often the way that the church has viewed sex has been very negative and very confused. So, for example, 200 years after Jesus, a man named Origen was so concerned for sexual purity that he actually castrated himself. And then 100 years after him, another Christian leader, a man called Ambrose of Milan, wrote about how he favoured the extinction of the human race rather than The continued sexual activity of the human race. We've been confused from time to time. Even today, even today, if you are going to a Roman Catholic church, uh, this would be a very different talk. In the Roman Catholic church, sex is innately wrong and it's permissible only for procreation and never for pleasure. Uh, And that's why they ban all forms of of contraception because unless there's a possibility of a a child being born, then sex is innately dirty and bad. And before we kind of look down at everyone else, you're sitting in an Anglican church today and we have our own sordid history, uh, our own sordid beginning in the sex life of Henry VIII and you can read about that or ask about that some other time. And so it's no no wonder actually that from time to time, and, and in fact for a lot of the time, uh, people have seen what Christians have talked about when they've talked about sex and they've come to the conclusion that what they're saying is harmful and hurtful and it has no relevance for the modern world and that all the church ever teaches is repression. You know, don't do this, don't do that and above all, don't have any fun. And the sad truth is that Yes, actually the easiest way of summarising what the Bible has to say on sex is to say it negatively. And that's to say something like this, to say that sexual intercourse is for a man and a woman in the covenant relationship of marriage. That is an accurate summary. But actually, it's not all that the Bible has to say there's a whole positive view of sex in the Bible that just rarely gets talked about or, or rarely gets mentioned. Christianity is very, very sexy when you understand what the Bible has to say about it. So come with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Let me kind of walk you through this. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring... Each man should have sexual relations with his wife and each woman with her own husband. Basically, what the Corinthians are asking is, isn't sex bad? Isn't sex kind of dirty and and kind of defiling? And Paul's answer is no, absolutely not. Sex is good. Sex is great. But let me just kind of unpack it kind of slightly for you because it's a a little bit of a complicated couple of verses. Uh, You see that little phrase... Now for the matters that's there at the beginning of verse 1. You see that phrase? It actually occurs five times in the book of 1 Corinthians from chapter 7 to 16. If you're really, really interested, it's here in seven one, it's in 7.25, it's in eight one, twelve one, and 16.12. I looked them all up. Uh, but what appears to be happening is that the Corinthians wrote Paul a letter in which they asked him a series of questions and now Paul is answering those questions. It's question time with the Apostle Paul. And they wrote their questions in the form of a statement. In this case the second half of verse 1, those those words that are in italics there. Uh, they say, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Or, or literally it says it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And what they're really asking is, you know, isn't it just kind of more celibate? Isn't it, isn't it more spiritual to be celibate? Isn't it kind of more spiritual not to have any sex at all? And This is actually the second of two errors that the Corinthians are making about sex. The first error is what I call the casual error, Uh, and that's this kind of this very casual view that they seem to have towards their bodies and towards sex. Uh, This view that kind of somehow what I do with my body it, it doesn't really matter, and so I might as well do whatever it is that I want, whatever it is that I I kind of feel like. Uh, sex is, is just an appetite, it's, it's just a biological function. You know, if I'm hungry, I go eat. If I'm tired, I go sleep. If I'm feeling sexy, I go and have some sex. And that view, back in chapters 5 and 6, which we've already looked at, that led to a whole lot of sexual immorality that was going on in the Corinthian church. And Paul even reminds them in verse 2 that that was the case, that that was what was going on, much to their shame. But the second error that they're making now is this kind of very prudish error Uh, and it's kind of the opposite. Uh, You can imagine that actually in response to the sexual immorality of chapters 5 and 6 that one of the other factions within the Corinthian church, and remember they were a very divided church, there were lots of factions in Corinth, one of the other factions has gone, it seems, in the complete opposite direction about sex. They're saying Don't do it at all. Don't get involved. Uh, Sex defiles you. It pollutes you. It's dirty. It's bad. And Paul actually wants to say, no, no, you've both got it wrong. Neither of you are understanding God's good gift of sex. Uh, Because both of these views come from a negative view of the body. Uh, The prudish era kind of thinks that somehow what we do with our bodies is dirty and is defiling and sex is kind of a bodily thing and so we shouldn't do anything like that. Uh, And the casual view is this kind of idea somehow that what we do with our bodies doesn't matter, so do whatever you want, Uh, do whatever you feel like. But Paul says, no, actually bodies and what we do with them are tremendously important, tremendously important things. And that's the very point of what he's trying to say. Honour God with your body. Honour the one who saved you and redeemed you with your body so there's nothing negative about our bodies. There's nothing negative about sex in and of itself. So, verse 2, But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. In other words, they are saying, you know, is it more spiritual to be celibate? Isn't it godlier? And Paul says, no, not at all. Uh, But seeing you have such a problem with immorality here in Corinth, you know, I can't believe I even have to say this to you, he says, you should have sex. And you should have sex with the person that you're married to. And in fact, you should have lots of sex with the person that you're married to. Heaps of that sort of sex. In fact, the only thing that should slow you down, according to Paul in verse 5, is prayer. You should have so much sex that the only thing you stop for is prayer. And even then, not for too long, I don't know, I wonder whether maybe he should have added in you know, food and sleep and coming to church or something like that in there as well. But Paul's saying, no, sex is good. Lots of sex is good. Lots of that kind of sex. But make sure you're only having it with the person that you're married to. And in fact, have so much sex that you aren't ever tempted to look elsewhere because of your lack of self-control. Uh, a little hint there that Sexual temptation is not a thing that suddenly disappears when you get married, but a good sex life in marriage can really help. Now, the way you honour God with your body when you're married is actually by having sex and having lots of it. And Paul is only saying this because he considers sex to be a good thing, a wonderful thing, a great thing. Uh, Because Paul, of course, he, he knows his Bible. He knows that that tucked away in the Old Testament is this little book called Song of Songs. And it is a whole book of the Bible that is devoted to the bodily pleasure of sex. It's not exactly something that gets kind of preached on very often, uh, but it's clearly about love and sex. We read just kind of a little bit of a a slice of it this morning and well done to Anna for, for reading that so well to us today. Lots of the imagery has been cleaned up in translation. But if you go away and read it, it's a pretty racy read, to be honest with you. A Song of Songs is a, is a picture of idyllic love. It's devoted to romance. It's devoted to love and to sexuality. The, the pair in, in the book of Song and Songs, uh, they're, they're playful and they're unashamed about the physical delight that they can have in each other and in which they can have in each other's naked bodies. They openly embrace their sexuality and their relationship that they have. It it hints at an almost kind of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden-like relationship. Uh, The couple have no shame in their nakedness and in their openness towards one another. Just kind of the love and the joy that they can give to one another and pleasure that they can give to one another. And Song of Songs is not an obscure part of the Bible either. Uh, that, you know, was somehow never talked about. Uh, It's actually, Song of Songs is part of the first of the five scrolls in the Jewish canon to be read out at festival occasions. It was to be read out on the eighth day of Passover in front of the whole assembly. Meaning that, you know, as a teenager, once a year you would have to sit next to mum or dad and you would have to listen to this whole book being read out to you, which was all about sex, knowing that you'd have to do exactly the same thing the next year as well. No, God says sex is good. God says sex is great, it's, it's, it's wonderful, and he wants us to see how wonderful it can be. Although let me just say, that is not always our experience. Guilt. Guilt. And shame and hurt are all very common emotions when it comes to this topic. As a disappointment and frustration. And that's because as wonderful as sex is and as God has made it to be, God did design it to be enjoyed in a particular way. And enjoyed that way, it is great, it is wonderful, but done in other ways It can do a lot of harm, and it can even be quite dangerous. In in that sense, sex is a little bit like electricity. You know, electricity, when you uh, do use it the right sort of way, it can do all sorts of wonderful things for you. It can keep the lights on. It can run the air conditioning. It can keep your phone charged. Uh, But if you fool around with electricity in the wrong way, it will kill you. And so, too, God says, sex can. So how did God design sex to be enjoyed? Well, let's move on to my second point then. this is the second thing I want to talk about. Sex isn't about me. Sex isn't about me. Come with me to verse 3. These are some really powerful verses that I'm sure you noticed as we read through. Come to verse 3. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. In other words, sex isn't about me. Now, this is perhaps the most single most important thing for us to understand about our sexuality, but it's also the hardest thing for us to understand. If you just had the kind of the first half of verse four, Uh, This would almost be one of the worst verses in the entire Bible, wouldn't it be? Uh, A wife not having authority over her own body? That's unthinkable. But it's amazingly balanced, isn't it? In the second half of the verse, a husband, in exactly the same way, he does not have authority over his own body either. Paul is saying that in marriage there is a kind of mutual ownership of each other's bodies. That's that's an incredible thing to say and it is incredibly different to the way that our culture thinks about sex because what Paul is saying here is that sex, it's not about me, it's never about me, in fact it's always about the other person. Uh, Your sexual capacity, it's not for you, it's never been for you. My sexuality, it is not my own, I don't own it. Like all of God's gifts, you use it for the good of others. Uh, God gave us our sexuality so that we could gift it entirely to someone else. Uh, The height of sexual pleasure is not to receive but to give. The most satisfying, satisfying, the most arousing thing possible is not to to take but to give. Uh, There is more pleasure in giving the orgasm than it is in receiving it. And sex is like that. When you're, when you're focused on giving to each other and not on taking, that's when you get that kind of relationship that Song of Songs talks about. That's when sex is as awesome as God wants it to be for us. Now, if you think these verses are strange in our culture, and they are, they're impossible in the world in which Paul is writing. Uh, To say that a woman has sexual needs or or sexual rights was unheard of in the first century. And yet here is Paul, 2,000 years before feminism, speaking about a woman's sexual desire and sexual rights as if it is a perfectly normal thing to talk about. But this really is incredible stuff. To give, not to receive. That's the important thing. And yet, it shouldn't surprise us, should it? Because really, if there is one thing that the gospel teaches us, it is that there are really, there's two ways that we can relate to other people in our world. Uh, one is to, to say to other people, you for me, your life for my life, you exist to make my life better, you exist to, to enhance my life, you exist to serve me, and that is the way of selfishness. And then there's another way of living, which is the complete opposite, which is to say, no, no. Me for you. My life for your life. My life to serve you. I exist actually to make your life better. I exist to to serve you. The, The way of servanthood. Now which one of those ways sounds like the way of Jesus Christ. Who gave up his life for us. So that we might be saved and live with him forever. The Lord Jesus teaches us such a different way of doing life from the rest of the world around us. And so it's no surprise that when it comes to sex, actually, it's exactly the same principle. It's exactly the same principle of being a servant rather than being selfish. And really, all that Paul is teaching to us here is that, that basic gospel principle of servanthood and he's just applying it to sex. But this also helps us to understand why the Christian view of sex and our culture's view of sex is so different. The conflict between Christianity and our culture is actually not about sex at all. We all think sex is good. We all think sex is great. The conflict between Christianity and our culture is actually over selfishness. It just so happens that sex is the battleground. Our world does sex selfishly. When our world thinks about sex it asks questions like how much can I get? How much pleasure can I get out of you? Uh, What can you give me? And once I've gotten all I can out of you, once I'm done with you, uh, well then I'll move on to the next person. Uh, I'll look for the next pleasurable experience that I can get. Uh, Which ultimately in the end is a fool's errand because that's The taking of pleasure is just not the way that we were designed. We were designed to give it instead. And so as Christians, we actually do sex as servants. We give, we serve, we understand that the greatest pleasure is to be found in a relationship where both have that attitude towards each other. And so the question becomes, you know, well, how can I be the greatest servant with my sexuality possible? And the answer is that that God comes back and gives us is the biblical relationship of marriage. Uh, Marriage is the most servant-hearted way of doing sex. Uh, Committing ourselves completely and exclusively to one other person for life. Uh, A man and a woman in a lifelong sexual relationship wholly committed to the good and to the pleasure of their partner. That's what God's answer is. Uh, He tells us that our sexuality, it is a precious treasure to keep and to keep pure and gift to that one person that we will share our life with. And then sex will bond us together in the oneness that God desires husbands and wives to have. Now, of course, I'm not trying to say that somehow it's not impossible to be sexually selfish in marriage. But I am trying to say that's not how it was ever designed to be. When you do marriage right, when you give yourselves to each other in this way, as God words describes, it's wonderful. It's a beautiful picture. But I'll put it to you like this. Uh, to, to help you understand this, I want to, really what it says is actually, uh, I'm not heterosexual. That always gets people's attention when I say that. I'm not actually heterosexual, at least not in the way that the world talks about it. Uh, I was not made to be attracted to women, I was not made to have sex with, with women, I was made to have sex with one woman and to have sex with one woman only and when I got married I promised that I would give my sexuality to my wife and to her and to her alone uh, as she did with me, in other words I'm bond sexual. Bond is my wife's name. That never really works quite so well if you've never met my wife. But, you know, I'm, I'm bondsexual. That's, that's, that's who God made me to be. That's who I promised that I would be on my wedding day. And when you do it like that, it's awesome. Now, strangely, the world creeps closer and closer towards this truth from time to time, Uh, There's uh, work by, there's a a, a professor at Rutgers University in New Jersey called Helen Fisher or there's even Patricia Werrikoon who used to work at the University of Sydney. Uh, And they have all sorts of research that they've done now into brain chemistry and all these sorts of things showing that actually our bodies and our brains are wired to actually best operate with one sexual partner for life. Uh, And of course the, the reason why the world does occasionally creep closer and closer to The truth of human sexuality as God reveals it is because actually it's written in our our very bodies. This is God speaking. This is God, our creator, telling us this. Uh, God's design is certainly very clear in God's worlds. It's written all over us. And so even without being too crude, the mutual giving of sex is even written onto our very bodies. It's even written into our anatomy as a man and a woman come together and mutually give themselves to each other. And then, just to really teach us just how servant-hearted God's design for sex really is, when you do things the way that God has designed, when you do enjoy sex as servants, then in his grace, God usually gives you the blessing of children. God gives you a whole new world of little people in your life to serve and to love, uh, to remind us just how much God really did make us to be servants and how sex is, it's not about me, but it's about serving others. But that leads me to the last thing that I want to talk about with you tonight and that is how we have unfortunately made it all about us, haven't we? We have made it all about me. All of us have histories, all of us have pasts, all of us have things that we have done in our selfishness, or we have had things that have been done to us by the selfishness of others. We live in a world that marinates in a stew of sexual selfishness, and that's just seen as normal. And the temperature slowly rises. But understanding that really this is a battle over being selfish or being a servant, understanding that that's really the battle that we're fighting, well, that helps us to understand why there are a few particularly damaging selfish behaviours. And I'm limiting myself to just a few. And they're damaging particularly because they promote within us a kind of selfish sexuality, which is the complete opposite from what God wants us to do. One of them, the obvious one, is any sex that is outside of marriage. Any sex outside the exclusive covenant of marriage. Such relationships are almost always born out of selfishness when you examine your motives carefully. And even if we think we are giving, like I said, we're not made to give ourselves to many, but to one. Uh, sex it does actually bond you together it, it bonds you in a relationship together uh, sex is it 's a little bit like superglue. Uh, you know I can take two bits of good two bits of wood, I can stick them th- together with superglue, and then I, once i 've done that, i can 't easily separate them again, at least not without doing some damage to both pieces of wood. And the same is true of sex. You can never completely separate from someone that you've had a sexual relationship with, at least not without damage. Your ability to trust and to love someone and to be vulnerable with them is actually linked to your sexual history. And the more sexual partners you've had, the harder it is to be a servant. Sex outside of marriage actually makes it harder for us to serve each other in marriage and Because it makes it harder to give, it makes it harder to trust, it makes it harder to be open. And I take it that that in part is what verses 10 to 16 is is actually all about. Uh, We read through it very quickly and I won't talk about it too much, but there it looks to me like Paul is exploring ways of keeping marriages together to promote servant sexuality. Uh, Particularly as they dealt with one issue that did come up, And does come up from time to time, uh, namely, namely when one person in a marriage becomes a follower of Jesus and the other one doesn't. And Paul wants to say that conversion to Christ is not a reason to leave your partner, actually it's a reason to stay. It's a reason to stay married, it's a really good reason to stay married. Uh, And he would certainly, I think, if he sat down with a group of people thinking about getting married, who who think that they have choice about who they can marry, I think he would certainly say to them, well, make sure that you marry someone who is in the Lord. Make sure that you marry someone who is going to have the same attitude towards sex as you do. Make sure you marry someone who is a follower of the Lord Jesus. And interestingly, right at the end of the chapter, when he speaks to a person like that, when he speaks to a, a young widow, that's exactly the advice that he gives. But another thing that is very wrong, because it promotes a selfish sexuality, is pornography. Porn is completely selfish. In pornography, another person's sexuality is taken, it's captured, it's digitised, and it's made completely about you, without you having to give up a thing. Except maybe your credit card, and certainly your dignity. If you are a user of porn, then it will take your sexuality and it will rewire and it will rework your sexuality until you're unable to give it to anyone at all. Porn, I think, in many ways, is almost the ultimate in selfish sexuality. And now I know that pornography is not just a male problem. Increasingly, it is an everyone problem. Some statistics put regular porn use in as many as one in three women. Uh, chiefly, it seems, as a way of learning about sex, which is a staggering thought. Learning about sex from pornography is a little bit like trying to learn to drive from watching the Formula One. Just, you just get the completely wrong impression of what it's all about. It gives you a completely wrong view of human sexuality. But the truth is that pornography teaches us to be selfish about our sexuality I think, in the exact opposite way that God intends. And the problems of pornography are now slowly starting to be recognised by our worlds. I read recently about pornography and the and the threat that it is posing. Uh, an article was talking about how uh, the impact that pornography has had on, on young men who've been habitual users of pornography over at least a decade and, and what their adult relationships are like with real women it talks about how many of them are simply unable to experience a sexual response with a real live woman they are only able to respond to pornography and in fact they prefer pornography they have been trained to be selfish and so now that is all that they can ever do and that is a real danger They will never know how good it is to be a servant with their sexuality the way our God intends. But the bottom line is this. Porn kills your ability to enjoy sex. And so porn kills marriages. And men, women, whoever you are, if porn is a problem for you in any way or any shape or any form, no matter how small it might feel, then you have to stop. And that starts by understanding how much damage you're doing to yourself and how much damage you're doing to your present or to a future husband or wife. We could go on. In fact, I could go on just about pornography for a lot longer, but I won't. I could go on about many things that are selfish in sexuality. But to be selfish in any of these ways or any number of other ways is actually to harm yourself and it is to sin against yourself and it is to sin against the God who redeemed you by the precious blood of his son. And I cannot help but think about where we were back in chapter 6 where Paul said, run away, flee from sexual immorality. Every sin a person can commit is outside the body. On the contrary, the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. And we have all sinned in this area of life. And that sin is not just against ourselves. That sin is against those that we might be married to now or might be in the future. And so let me just end by reminding you of two really important words in Christianity. The first word is grace. The first wonderful Christian word is grace. God is always gracious to us. He has in Christ Jesus our Lord forgiven every sin that we have committed sexual sins are serious they have real repercussions but actually they're not somehow in some sort of special category whereby they're unforgivable every sin is forgivable by the blood of the lord jesus christ and so i want to reassure you that christ can and he does and he has brought real forgiveness for our sexual sins And he can and he does and he will even bring healing from our sexual pasts as well. And so if you are feeling guilty tonight about anything that I've said, then please use the gospel. Use the wonderful promise of Jesus Christ dying for your sins to help you to get over the guilt of your past. Don't try and use the promise of of future good behaviour. Don't try and do a deal with God somehow and say, you know, if I'm good from now on, will you forgive me? Don't try and do anything silly like that. It won't work because we're all sinners and we're bound to sin in the future as well. And that will just kind of bring all of the guilt back and, and it'll bring all of the, the temptation to feel that somehow God doesn't love us back. No. No once we were sinners but now in Christ Jesus we have been washed, we have been cleansed, we have been purified, we have been forgiven, we have been justified all by the blood of Christ. Every sinner has a past but in the gospel we are forgiven and we have a future. But there's also another word that's really powerful in the Christian life and that's the word repentance. That's really powerful too. Because repentance reminds us that change is possible with the help of the Holy Spirit. We can and we must be different from the world. We must flee and fight against even the desires, sometimes the desires of our own hearts. Our emotions and our feelings, they are wonderful servants at times. Uh, but they are terrible masters. Uh, in fact, our hearts our hearts are a little bit like the dashboard of your car. The dashboard of your car has all sorts of useful information, good information that you need, but you can't drive just by looking at the dashboard of your car. That, that's a disaster. And it's the same thing with our hearts. Our hearts have all sorts of information that we need, but you can't run your life just by thinking about what you're feeling. You need to look up and you need to look to Christ. And these things are particularly hard because it's hard to trust Jesus sometimes, isn't it? It's hard to trust that his way is right and that his way is best. But I want to remind you that One of the reasons why it's hard to trust Jesus here is because lots of us have trusted others in the past with these matters of the heart. And those people have failed us and let us down. Those people have hurt us. And we're afraid that Jesus might do the same. And again, we've got to keep coming back to the gospel and reminding ourselves and each other That if there is one person who will never fail us and let us down, it is Jesus Christ our Lord, the one who has loved us and the one who loves us even now. And so, in the end, in these matters of the heart, we have a choice, like we always do a choice to live the world's way, to follow them, to trust them, or we have a choice to live God's way, to follow Jesus, and to trust Jesus. And your choices in this area will really demonstrate the substance of your faith. It will really demonstrate whether or not we are willing to trust Jesus with these things that are most precious to us. And so let us choose Christ. Christ. And let us follow his example of servanthood in all of our life, even with our sexuality. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, there's there's lots to say and and lots to think about. But Lord, we do pray that you might help us to trust Jesus. Help us to remember what he has done for us. To know the great love that he has for us. And so therefore we pray that we would be willing to let him rule over even this part of our life as well. And Lord we pray that by letting him reign that we might too even experience the blessings and the goodness of sex. And doing sex the way that you intended us and designed us to do it. Amen.